0: Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, The Story of David. Today, we take a look at what is probably the second most famous story about David as we look at David and Bathsheba. Lead Pastor David Fossil challenges us with his message, Resisting Temptation. We're reminded that temptation will come, and that we ought to ask ourselves, how am I going to resist my temptation? Listen as Pastor Dave gives us some pointers to help us recognize and deal with temptation when it does come into our lives.
1: Okay, grab the study guide that's in your program and turn in your Bibles to Second Samuel 11, page 309. Second Samuel 11, I'm not going to have all the verses on the screen, so it'll pull it out on your phone or the church uh, pew Bible. As you guys are doing that real quick, uh, by show of hands, how many people have been married here 30 years or longer? Show. Let's give these people a big hand. Look at 30 years. Wow. Outstanding. Okay, opposite, opposite, newlyweds, one year or less. Oh, look, I see they're all cuddly right next to each other. They can't wait to get out of here and go on a walk, you know. Very good. Very exciting, right? Okay. Uh, not 30 years, not one year. You're single, but someday you'd like to get married. Good. Single. Okay, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Look around. Check out your options real quick. Right? I actually know of a couple that met in church during Greet Your Neighbor time, so don't waste those 10 seconds. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, marriage. Family. Parenting, good things, enjoyable things, satisfying, but also very challenging, right? Challenging because we live in a difficult world. Challenging because sometimes, you know, we make mistakes. Challenging because sometimes we muddy the water and do things contrary to God's will as it relates to marriage, family, parenting. You don't have to be a trained therapist, a counselor to know Uh, One of the most destructive and damaging things that you can do, not only to your marriage, but to your family, is what we're going to talk about this morning as we continue the life of David. The latest statistics that I've come across come from the uh, Journal of Psychology and Christianity that tell us that 65% of husbands and 55% of wives will commit adultery and have an affair before age 40. Those are staggering, staggering numbers. Today we're going to look at what is probably the second most famous story as it relates to David. The, fo- the, the most famous is David and Goliath. We talked about that what a month or two ago. Uh, today is the story when when David has a fling. he has an affair with this, this woman. Married woman called Bathsheba. And so we're going to talk about it today. If you notice in your study guide, though, what I'm what I've tried to do is I'm not making this just about married couples and don't have affairs because n- not everyone here is married, and maybe different life situations. Uh, this isn't as applicable to you. But, but what, what, the, what we're going to look at is applicable. We're going to talk about resisting temptation. All of us have temptation. And we're just going to use this story as an example of, of how to learn how do I resist my temptation? when I walk out of here 30 minutes from now, am I going to learn something different to make me a better, a stronger Christian to resist this? Okay. So that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to read this story, part of the story. Uh, second Samuel chapter 11, the first five verses I do have on the screen. Uh, and then thereafter we'll, uh, we'll have to have our, use our body, uh, our Bible. So here's how it starts in the spring at the time when Kings go off to war David sent Joab, that was the commander of his army, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace, right? He has insomnia. He can't sleep. He had a cup of coffee too late and he wakes. He he can't, he can't fall asleep. So he gets up, walks around from the roof. He saw a woman bathing. The woman was Very beautiful. I've also given you in parentheses what the message says right here. She was stunningly gorgeous. Right. Uh, And or so David sent someone to find out about her. Next verse says this. The man said uh, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite Uh, in, in, in the Hebrew the implication is that this might have been in the form of a question. Hey, who's that woman? Servant says, well, isn't she the wife of Uriah? Hint, hint, as in you shouldn't be worrying about her. She's got a ring on her finger. But he's just a lowly messenger. Right? And so king... We read, Then David the king sent messengers to go get her. She came to him, and of course, these next two verses are comprised in terms of time, and a lot of things kind of probably happened in between. He slept with her. She went home. She could see, uh, the woman conceived, sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. If you're jotting down notes, there's two or three principles I want to talk to you about as we get going. Here's the first principle Doing nothing is incredibly dangerous. Doing nothing is incredibly dangerous. Do nothing to your home. Don't maintain it. Don't take care of it. And eventually your home will crumble. Do nothing to your teeth. Don't brush them. Don't floss them. Don't go to the dentist. And eventually you're going to get cavities and your teeth are going to fall out. Do nothing to your front lawn. Don't water it. Don't fertilize it. Don't mow it. And eventually it will be overtaken by weeds. Right? Do nothing to your car. Don't change the oil. Don't change the spark plugs. Don't do a timing belt. And eventually you're going to be walking everywhere. Doing nothing is incredibly dangerous. Doing what David did at the beginning of this chapter is what got him in trouble. Nothing. You see, in the, in the springtime, that's when they would go off to war. The, the nation of Israel is still in the process of conquering Canaan, the promised land. So they have these skirmishes, these battles that they are regularly involved in. And, and they, they, you know, they kind of have this uh, understanding amongst the nations. You know, there's a certain time of the year when it's going to rain. And so based upon that, there's a certain time of the year when we have to farm. But after that's out of the way in the springtime, that's when we're going to battle. You see, in the springtime, that's when they were supposed to go to war. And up till this point in time, David has been a good soldier. He has led his men. In the springtime, he would go out into the battle. Except this time. This time, he does nothing. This time, he sends the men out into battle. And he decides to just, well, sit back on his couch and do nothing. Do nothing to your car. Do nothing to your lawn. Do nothing to your teeth. Do nothing in your spiritual walk. And it's incredibly dangerous. Do nothing. Don't prioritize Sunday morning. That's for weak people. Don't give financially. Don't go to youth group. Whatever you do, don't sign up for a small group. Do nothing. And I'm here to tell you that's incredibly dangerous and potentially destructive in your life. It's the worst thing you could do. The second principle really starts out with with an observation real quick about the lady in the story. Her name is Bathsheba. Now, very obviously, let's be honest. He's the aggressor. He initiates the contact. He's the king. So he kind of has a position of authority. You know, Her, her husband, it works for for the king, you know, all those things. So he's the aggressor. But let's not be so naive to think that she's not completely innocent. She know she knows what she's doing. She may have not planned it, but, but you know how it is. Whenever you're naked, whether that's changing to get dressed or in the bathroom to take a shower, you know, based upon the windows and the side of line, if the, if the drapes are open and the curtain is, is open, who might be able to see you, right? This morning, right? I'm taking a shower. I have a small window in my shower, and I realize that if someone is sitting on the top of my neighbor's house they could see me naked. If I ever see you there, that's going to be freaky, right? (laughs) But that's the line of sight, right? So she knows if I'm naked in this part of my house, nobody could see me. If I'm naked in this part of my house, nobody could see me. But if I'm naked in this one spot in my house, there's a window right there and the sight of line is right up to that, that uh, little area right there, that veranda. And if someone's there and I'm naked here, they can see me. By the way, that patio happens to be the patio of the palace where the king lives. So if there's anybody that can see me naked, it's the king. See what I'm saying here? And here's the principle. Speaking specifically to ladies, I'm going to get to the guys in a second. It's one thing to make yourself look attractive. And it's quite another thing to make yourself look seductive. And I think you know the difference, but I guarantee you that guys know the difference. Now, let me just get it out of the way. There's nothing wrong with uh, looking nice. There's nothing wrong with nice, nice clothes. There's nothing wrong with going to the gym and and, and, and and having a nice figure. There's nothing wrong with perfume and there's nothing wrong with being attractive. Nothing wrong with that. Right. That's a, That's a good thing to want. Right. It's one thing to look attractive, but there's a line that, that can be crossed when you now begin to look seductive. Right. And uh, this is this is kind of how it all starts. And you go, well, it's not it's it's you know, it's guys. It's all on them. Not really. You have to have the understanding and the wisdom to understand that how we portray ourselves to others matters. I I was a youth pastor 25 years ago in Chicago, and I remember a conversation I had with with a senior in high school. And she came to me one one night and one afternoon at a youth group. And she goes up. I'm just sick and tired of guys. Every guy I want, all he wants is sex. All he wants is my body. That's all he's interested in. All of them. And I said, girl, do you trust me? She goes, yeah. I said, would you mind me telling you why? Maybe part of the reason that is. She goes, yeah. Well, and I said to her, you know, the reason all the guys that you date are only interested in your body is because that's all you're advertising. It's, it's just me, right? And I care for you. I'm your youth pastor. Look at how you dress, girl. Look at how you walk and what you shake. Look at how many buttons you button and unbutton. If all you're advertising is your body, don't be surprised if that's the only guys you attract. But if you also advertise your mind, you're a smart kid. If you also advertise your personality. If you also advertise as a Christian woman, your soul you're going to attract a completely different kind of guy. So you have to be aware of that, right? You have to be aware of that. Now, to the guys, just because a woman dresses a certain way does not give you an excuse to go down the path that David went down. It's not on them. It's still on you. And we're going to get to that in a minute. The next thing, uh, really, that I want to point out to you and gets us into the next bigger section is you have to understand temptation before... You're in a position to be able to resist temptation. If we have time at the end, we'll read Proverbs chapter five, the entire chapter, the whole chapter, 23 verses is a dad talking to his son about the dangers of sexual sin. The title in the NIV is warning against the the adulteress, right? And he just goes on and, and he's talking to his son. Now there's two principles that I see in Proverbs chapter five principle. Number one, talk to your kids about sex. Talk to them when they're super young, seven, eight, nine. You go, really that young? Yeah. Do you want them to find out in the playground or in the gym room? Or would you prefer them to hear it from you? Right? Talk to them when they're 12, 13, and then talk to them when they're 17, 18. Each conversation is different. Don't just have one sex talk. You have to have multiple discussions with your kids. And again, don't you prefer for them to hear it from you than from someone else? Okay, it's important that you understand it. But the second principle that you see in Proverbs chapter five, just like second Samuel 11, is that there are steps and there's a process and there's a progression to temptation. David doesn't meet Bathsheba in the candle aisle of Walmart. And next thing you know, they're sleeping together. There are steps and there's progression and you need to understand how temptation is going to attack you if you want to know how to defeat it. Let me show you what I see in the first couple verses here of chapter 11. There's these six steps. Now, first of all, we've already talked about it. It starts with visual. I don't know what it was. The king couldn't sleep. He goes to his patio. You know, he's eating some sunflower seeds and all of a sudden, oh, mama, right? What is going on over here, right? And it starts visually with what he sees right now here. I got to talk to you about something here, because I'm hearing, especially from guys, even in the Christian community, right, that looking is acceptable. And and I hear this kind of thing. It's not all I'm doing is looking at the menu, right? I'm not ordering anything, right? And we and, and we besides I'm a guy. That's what guys do. That's what we do, right? And we, we relegate it to biology. That's just who guys are. That's how we're wired, right? You know, I'm looking, not touching, right? That's, what we're, that's where we're going to go, really? See, he, here's the thing. Uh, you're lying. You're lying. You can control what you look at. You may not be able to control look, number one, because we live in a very sensual world with a lot of images coming at us. You may not be able to avoid look number one, but you can avoid look number two. Let let me give you an example. Let's see if this works for you. You are at Santa Cruz Boardwalk. It's hot. You're walking along the boardwalk and about 50 feet uh, down the boardwalk, walking in your direction is a 22 year old blonde girl. She's wearing short shorts She's wearing a tight shirt. She just came off the water ride and she's soaked and her clothes are tight to her body. You get the picture, right? She's walking towards you, right? But it's not just you walking on the boardwalk. Oh, no, no, no. Your wife is holding your hand. Your kids are right in front of you. Oh, let's make it really good. Your mother is with you. Your stepmother is with you, right? Let's really, let's just pile it on. Your pastor is right there watching you right? Billy Graham and mother Teresa are also there on the boardwalk (laughs) and we are watching you and what you're going to do as this 22 year old walks by you. Is there any chance based upon all the people that are with you, any chance you're going to look her, check her up and down and say, God's creation is good. (laughs) Any chance you're going to do that? No. And and, and that proves my point. That's my point. Now, I would hope I would hope as Christian men, we wouldn't do that even if we were alone. But but the the point of the story is to prove to you that you can control your 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 looking. You can. And and if you choose to look a second, third and fourth time, that's your choice. You, You won't always have your mommy or your pastor or your wife around you to by the way, that's just called positive peer pressure. Peer pressure isn't always bad. Sometimes the, my, the reason I didn't mess up in life as, as much is because I had three friends that were godlier than I was. I messed them up a little bit, but they pulled me in the right direction. Right? Positive peer pressure. It starts visual. Then it goes to mental. So he goes from, hmm, she looks good. And now he starts going, I wonder who she is. wonder if she's married. Hey, who's the who's the new girl in in, in the office? I, I wonder is the UPS man married? Do you, hey, does anyone know who who the, you know the, the, the guy that moved in, the gal that moved in to, to the condo four B? Does anyone know who? And now you 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 take something you started seeing, and now you're entertaining it mentally, and that's step number two. Step number three is verbal. And what David does is he calls a servant to ask her to cut. We're just going to chat. You know, obviously she can't sleep. I can't sleep. We're just going to sit around. We have, have some Pepsi and popcorn and just we're just hanging out. What's up, girl? You, you work out. You look good. Hashtag you're tight. Yeah. Right. And it goes from. And nowadays we have texting. Right. Let me just say this. You have absolutely no business texting someone from the opposite sex past a certain time at night. Oh, it's just work. That's a bunch of baloney. It's a bunch of baloney. I'm just, I'm just catching up on Facebook. Try, really? Why would you want to catch up with your, the boyfriend or girlfriend you went, to, you had in high school? Especially if you tell me your spouse doesn't know about it, now we've got a bigger bigger issue. This social media, it's interesting when people, sociologists now study affairs, it's amazing how much social media plays a part in that. Amazing. So it goes from visual to mental to verbal and then it's relational. Now it's beyond who are you. Now it's a it's a friendship. Right. We're hanging out together. We're, we're doing things together. Right. We want to spend time together. It's like this uh, dean of students who's talking to the freshman at college. You know, they have orientation and he says, OK, this is a this is a Christian college. And I just want to know that the guys are not allowed in the girl dorm rooms and the girls are not allowed in the guys dorms room. And, and he says, if guys, if we catch you in the girls dorm room, the first time we're going to give you a $20 fine. If we catch you a second time, we're going to give you a $60 fine. If we catch you the third time, we're going to give you a $250 fine right away. One of the co- college freshmen, the guys puts his hands up. He goes, I just want to know how much does it cost for a season pass? And that's relational. And then you get to emotional. It, emotional is when it's, here's how it sounds like. You know, they really understand me. They understand what I'm going through. I, I, I feel like when I, when, I, when I talk to them, they, they get me. This is what counselors refer to as emotional affairs. No one's taken their clothes off yet. But you you have given something to 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 someone else that rightfully belongs to your spouse. Just a little hint, unless it's a counselor or maybe a pastor or someone in authority above you, I would never, ever, ever share certain things about yourself with someone from the opposite sex. The minute you do that, you have a little secret, you have a little bond with them. And you, without even realizing it, unintentionally have opened the door. Now, this is your pastor speaking to you, not wanting to thump you on the head, but really genuinely wanting to help you. And let me try and help you. Some of you are eight to ten months away from a fair. You just don't realize it right now. Because you are traveling on temptation highway and you continue to go down the highway. And if you don't get off, you will end up doing something months from now that you regret. Starts visual, then it goes mental, then it's verbal, then relational, and then emotional. And before you know it, it's pants on the ground, pants on the ground, looking like a fool, like pants on the ground. But it doesn't go skip step one through five to six. Normally, it's very systematic. You need to understand how temptation works if you want to deal with it. Now, again, because of the subject nature uh, it's appropriate for me ever so briefly to, to, you know, there are three perspectives when it comes to sex, three, three perspectives. Let me show you what I mean. Sex is God. Sex is gross. Sex is a gift. We live in a day and age where they believe bullet point number one. Do anything you can do everything you can to get me some. Right. Sleep with as many people as you can, as many times as you can. That's the society we live in. That's what is proposed and propagated by Hollywood and by culture is that, you know, do whatever you have to. If it feels good, do it. Ever seen that bumper sticker on a car? If it feels good, do it. I saw a bumper sticker uh, on a car. It was right behind them, and I desperately just wanted to crash into the back of them. And they would get out and go, what are you doing? I thought it would feel good. So I did it. Very dangerous to live your life that way. Sex is gross. This is a very conservative, distorted Christian worldview. Um, in fact, there was an early church leader, early church father by the name of Gregory of Nisus, and he taught that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden never had sex. Of course, they had a bunch of kids. They never had sex. How did she get pregnant? Well, you see, God had a special tree in the Garden of Eden, and anytime wanted, Eve wanted to go get pregnant, she would go there, eat the fruit, she would get pregnant. So I was right away. I'm like, Sandy, be careful when you go to, to the store and what fruit you get, because I don't know. We got, already got three. You got to be careful what fruit you're eating. It's a distorted worldview that thinks that we shouldn't be talking about that in church. Don't you have something godly to bring up? See, here's the problem. Every, everyone's talking about it except the church in many cases. And I think that's the, the reason s- so many of us are getting in trouble in this area. The last one is that sex is a gift. Um, The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the primary and exclusive reason uh, that sex was given uh, was uh, to a husband and wife. okay, in the context of marriage for one purpose, procreation kids. So the Roman Catholic Church believes and teaches that uh, uh, birth control is wrong. Because as a couple, if you take birth control, you're stopping the purpose for which God gave that to a husband and wife. So that's why they believe birth control is wrong. Except that uh, during the Reformation time, a guy by the name of Martin Luther came along, and he broke away from the Catholic Church ever so slightly, and he said, you're right. Sex is given to husband and wife for kids. Obviously, duh, that makes sense. But point number two, it was also given also given for a husband and wife to have intimacy and just to have fun that's it that's what martin luther said in fact martin luther taught and suggested to christians that he preached to that couples married couples should have sex twice a week that's what he talked about that's what he preached about now i grew up baptist and if if you grew up baptist we never talked about sex in church because that might lead to dancing and we certainly wouldn't want that right (laughs) <laughs> um let me just speak as plainly as I can. Especially if you're single, especially if you're, you know, 25 and younger, 30 and younger and your hormones are going like crazy, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have sex. I've always told my kids, you know, wanting to have it just tells me you're wired correctly. Nothing wrong with it. In fact, let me take it one step further. Physically speaking, If you have sex outside of marriage, physically speaking, it'll still feel good. Biologically speaking, it'll still feel good. But what I'm here to tell you is that there's more to consider than just biology. What you need to also understand is that spiritually speaking, when you have sex outside of the bounds of marriage as prescribed by God, whether you realize it or not, whether you understand it or not, whether you feel it or not, you have just impacted your soul. It's impacted your soul. Now, I'm not going to go on a tangent here. Let me take it one step further, though, and say that 1 Corinthians says that, you know, there's a lot of sins. But for whatever reason, sexual sin damages your soul and damages your spiritual journey more than you even imagine. So you have to be careful. Okay, I get it. You want it. That's fine. Your hormones are going crazy. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with wanting it. It's what are you going to do with that desire? What are you going to do with that desire? Now, I'm going to read the rest of the story because I, I think it's appropriate. And just to give you a kind of a real quick outline of where we've been and where we're going. The first couple of verses, let's put it up there. The first couple verses in 1 Samuel 11 is the progression of temptation. But from verse 6 to verse 27, after verse 5, he's already decided I'm going to sleep with her. But from, from verse 6 on, it's the progression of sin. And I, I'm just going to point a couple of things out to you. This is where you're going to need your Bibles. I'm not going to read all of it to you, but here's we go. Verse six. So David sent word uh, to Joab, that's his commander of the army. He sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. So Uriah is off fighting because that's what he was supposed to do, and so David calls him back once he he discovers that Bathsheba is pregnant. Verse seven. Uriah came to the king. David asked him, "How's Joab? How the soldiers?" How's the war going? You talk about cold. He just slept with his wife. His wife's pregnant with his child and he's just sitting around shooting the breeze. Verse eight, David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. That's that's code for take a shower and get cozy with your wife. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. Uriah walks out and David's like, send them a couple bottles of wine. I want them to have a really nice night tonight. Verse nine, but Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. You see, Uriah is on duty and he understands military code and soldier code. I'm not supposed to be here. My battalion, the guys I'm fighting with that have saved my life and I've fought for them, they're still on the battlefront. And there's no way, as much as I may want to, that I'm going to go to my house, take a shower and be with my wife. I want to, but I'm not going to do it. Verse 10, David was told Uriah did not go home. And he asked, well, why haven't you go home? Uh, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? You see, David is all concerned. This is his out. He knows Bathsheba is pregnant. If I can get Uriah to sleep with his wife, you know, three months from now, when she starts to show, you know, they, he he's going to think it's my kid. You know, this isn't Jerry Springer days when they're checking, uh, you know, to find out who the dad is. Well, just pretend it's Uriah's. But he doesn't sleep with his wife. Verse 12, then David said to him, stay here one more day and, and, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and that night at david's invitation he ate and drank with him and david made him drunk he's going to try one more time i'm going to get him toasted right i'm going to try and get his defenses down at david uh he drank with him in the evening uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants and again he did not go home so verse 14 in the morning david wrote a letter to joab the commander of his forces and he sent it with uriah This is horrible what he does. Look at the letter that he sends. Uh, Uriah carries this letter back to the battlefront, and that letter is literally his death certificate. In it, the king wrote, put Uriah on the front line where the the battle is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of David's men and armies fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. One thing you need to understand about Scripture, doctrinally speaking, is that uh, the Bible teaches that every time we sin, something dies. That's frankly the big story and the big point of Genesis 3. Genesis 1 and 2, God's creates. Genesis 3, sin enters the world. And the first thing God says to Adam and Eve after they sin is because of this, you're going to die. And what you need to understand is that when we sin, something always dies. Either it dies literally or it dies figuratively or it dies spiritually or relationally or, or, or something always dies. That's why God and Christ are fighting the power of sin so much in our lives. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of you, but look at the last line of verse 22. Uriah, the Hittite, died. Look at the last line of verse 24. Uriah, the Hittite, died. So we we got the point. He's dead. Verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, the commander of the army. Don't, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Joab feels bad about what he did. Verse 26, Uriah's wife. Notice, he is, she's not called Bathsheba anymore. You Notice that? She's referred to as Uriah's wife. Why? It, because the writer of Samuel is trying to explain to us and understand that once you say, I do, once you put a wedding band on, but once you say, till death do us part, uh, I, I am not to be known to you as simply David. That's not how I'm to be known. No, my, my, my life status has changed. I am no longer David. I, I am also just as much Sandy's husband. And Samuel's trying to help us understand that. Fascinating to me, the contrast between Uriah and David as well uriah does what is right doesn't sleep with his wife he's a good soldier uriah does what is right which which resulted in in and he needed a lot of self-control to pull that off david did exactly the opposite what was wrong and required absolutely no self-control and the story ends after the time of mourning was over verse 27 david had her brought to his house she became his wife and bore him a son Tie a bow on it, everything can go back to normal, except the story ends. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. So here's the next principle that you need to understand is that sin is to your soul. Sin is to your spiritual journey what a flat tire is to your car. You you could do a lot of good things as as a Christian. You can come to church on a regular basis. You can go to small group. You can go to youth group, right? You can read your Bible. You can pray. You can give financially. You can go on compassion, uh, uh, you know, events that we do as as a church. You can do a lot of good things as a follower of Jesus Christ. But when you sin, notice I didn't say if you sin, when you sin, John tells us we all have sin in our life. When you and I sin, if we aren't intentional about trying to eliminate that sin, but the opposite, allow it to grow in our life. If you allow that, eventually sin will do to your spiritual journey what a flat tire does to your car. Let's stay with the car analogy. We all probably drove to church. Let's say there's someone out there with a, with a brand new spanking car. I mean, like a, a 2017 model, right? They're just coming to the car dealerships, right? And it's beautiful on the outside. The paint job is wonderful and there's no dents on it. And it just hums and it's quiet and it's fast, right? And, and, and on the inside, it's got all the gadgets and the GPS and the great stereo system. And it's got, I mean, it's an awesome car. The engine, of course, because it's new. It's on t- in tip-top shape. But let me ask you a question. If you, if you, as you drive out of here, you, maybe you drive over a nail, you get a flat tire. How far are you going to go? What's going to happen to your car? You're going to have to pull over and a Pinto is going to fly right on by (laughs) you. I don't care how nice your car is. You get a flat tire. You're not going anywhere. And that's what you need to understand about sin in your life. If you allow it to gain a stranglehold on your soul and you allow it to grow, it will actually bring your entire spiritual journey to a grinding halt. And you need to understand that. You know, I think we understand it. The problem is we tend to do what David did when he sinned. Instead of repenting and confessing, we we do these three things. Let me show you. The first thing he did is he hid it. He hid it. That's verses 1 through 5, 1 through 6. That's why he's trying to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. If Uriah sleeps with his wife, then we can just pretend it's his kid. And no one will know. He tries to hide it. You see, instinctively, when you do something you ought not to do, you have someone speaking, and that's your conscience telling you, as a follower of Christ, God doesn't want you doing this. You might not even know a verse, but something inside is you telling, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be saying this. I shouldn't be going here. And so a lot of times, if we keep doing it, we try to hide it. We don't want the person next to us or behind us to know what's happening. We hide it. But the longer you do that, at some point in time, you got to make that voice, the conscience, shut up. And so we transition to to bullet point number two. We begin to rationalize it. We rationalize it. I I, I didn't pause, but the verse that bothers me the most... I don't know why, but it's the conversation that he or the message that he gives to the messenger to say to Joab, Joab, the commander, does what the king does. He puts Uriah at the front, backs away, let Uriah get killed. But he feels horrible about it. I don't want one of my men to die like that. We're supposed to be helping him. And instead, we pulled away from him. So he feels guilty. He feels bad. Yeah, I obeyed my king, but I feel bad. So the king sends a message and he says this to him. Don't feel so bad. You know, soldiers die. It happens. It's normal. And you see that that's eventually what you're going to start saying to yourself to drown out your conscience. This is normal. Yeah, it's 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 normal to sleep around. It's normal to to have sex, you know, before you get married. I mean, you got to test drive a car before you, you know, buy it and everything. I mean, it's just what do people do. And you start to believe what culture tells you. I came across this, I thought, very interesting statistic. 90% of all sexual situations on TV. So whether they're overt and show something or they suggest it. 90% of all sexual situations on TV are, are between non-married individuals. You see? It's normal. Everybody's doing it. I mean, I know what Dave said, but you know... I mean, there's a lot in this book that's good, but you know, there's a couple things that are kind of antiquated. And so you start to rationalize it. It's the only way that you now, oh, finally I can shut that voice up, my conscience. And eventually he maximizes it. Well, Uriah is gone. We might as well get married. You might as well move into the palace with me. This is the wrong way to deal with temptation and with sin. If you look at your study guide, this is how I'm going to wrap up. Page number three. I know I got a lot of stuff for you today. It's blank and it just says 10 application steps. Honestly, I don't care if you write anything down. What I do care about is if you find one or two things you're going to do differently when you walk out of this door, when you face temptation this week, because you will face temptation this week, what are you going to go do differently? So find something in these next couple minutes. Okay, let's go through them rather quickly and we'll wrap up. Number one is identify my top temptation. Identify my top weakness. What I have for you on the screen is what is referred to as the seven deadly sins. Now, the Bible talks about a lot of different sins. This list was developed by monks hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, presented to the church and to Christians and said, you know, of all the sins in the Bible, these seven anger, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, laziness and envy These seven are the ones we tend to struggle with the most. And if you're honest and look at that list, you could probably find one or two you're really good at. Right? If you're honest. Now, if your sin isn't on this list, let's say your sin is gossip. Well, I don't care what it is. The point still remains. Identify your top weakness, your top temptation. And why do I say this? I say this because the enemy knows your weakness. You see, the enemy does not have unlimited resources. He is not going to tempt you to be prideful if that's not your deal. Why would he waste his time and his energy trying to tempt you to do something that you're not tempted by? He's going to go after where you're weakest because he knows if I can get them where they're weakest, I can bring this whole thing down Be honest. Just this this is the one area I work I struggle with. This is the one area I always have to be aware of, or two areas, okay? So number one, identify your top temptations. Number two and three go together. Pray specifically for strength. Pray continually for wisdom. So when you face temptation, God give me the strength to withstand it. Give me the strength to stand up in front of it. Give me the the, the strength to win against temptation. And then pray continually for wisdom. I told you Proverbs 5 is about sexual sin. Look at how it starts, right? A Dad talking to his, his son, this is how he starts. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Be wise. Interesting. He doesn't say be strong. He says be wise. You need to have wisdom to know how to defeat temptation, which leads us right into point number four. Point number four is identify temptations exit ramps. So you're traveling on temptations highway and I'm trying to encourage you to take an exit, get off the highway. You go, what, what is this talking about? Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is one of the most famous verses uh, about temptation. And here's what it says. Paul says this, no temptation ha- has overtaken you, has come upon you except what is common to mankind. In other words, uh, uh, you, you're not allowed to say, well, you know, my situation is very unique my temptation is is extra difficult and extra special and extra strong i mean what i deal with is not what you you deal with you're not allowed to say that because paul says no no everything you've gone through everything you've gone through normal 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 other people go through the same thing okay no temptation is overtaken. you except what is common to man and god is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear so again Understand what is being suggested. Temptation is not sin. But if I choose to take a step and sin, it's my choice. Because God will never allow you to be in a situation that is beyond you getting, uh, get, getting out of it. Ever, ever, ever. And he says this. When you're tempted, when you're on temptation highway, he always will provide a way out. He's going to give you an exit ramp so that you can endure it and you don't have to sin. You go, well, I, I still, not, I'm, I'm not following these temptation ramps. Uh, let me, there's always all kinds of ways out. Let me show you what I mean. Let's put the next slide up there. Th- this was the steps of temptation, right? We just talked about this. What you also need to understand is these are all exit ramps. They're all exit ramps. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, uh, the first one, stop looking. Job has said, and he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lust- lustfully upon a woman. Make a covenant, make a decision. I can't avoid step uh, look number one. I'm going to avoid look number two. That's your exit. Get off temptation highway. If you didn't get off then mental, stop thinking about it. Take every thought captive is what I'm thinking about. Good, healthy and godly. And if not, get off temptation highway. The next one, stop communicating. Well, that's going to be rude. So be it. Being a little bit rude and being not so friendly is better than being a sinner. Stop texting, stop Facebook messaging. Right? Go to lunch with someone else from work. Stop communicating. The next one is stop spending time together. The next one is stop bonding. These are all tech uh, uh exit ramps. Every single one of them, God's giving you opportunity to stop, stop, stop. Last one is stop touching. Stop touching. Right? Even, I don't care if you have a serious boyfriend, serious girlfriend. Even if you're engaged, you're gonna get married. There are certain boundaries that God gives you. And if you go past those boundaries, you are one step away. You are two steps away. You've gotta be smart. You've gotta know yourself. Identify the exit ramps. The GPS, your spiritual GPS is saying, here's one coming right now. Get off. Get off the highway of temptation before, before, before it's too late. OK, the, number five, number five, don't be stupid. Right. Don't, let me just say this. I, I told my kids, you're not allowed to use that word. In fact, my, I got my daughter here and we tell her she's not allowed to use that word stupid. Right. That's not a nice word to say stupid. But you know what? I, I'm pretty good at communication. And I thought and I thought and I thought this week and I chose to use that word because it's a good word. There are some things that this word communicates that no other word communicates. In fact, I'll turn to the person next to you and say, don't... No, let's not do that. As fun as that might be. Don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Keep your guard up. I think it's interesting. Corinthians 10, 13. Everybody quotes it. Oh, we love that verse. No one ever talks about Corinthians 10, 12. Same topic for the verse just before it. And he says this. Watch. If you think you're standing firm. If you think... I would never do that. If you think I've been in church since I was in diapers. If you think I'm a super Christian, if you think I'm a leader in this church, if you think this is for so-and-so, but not for me, you're stupid. That's mine. That's not Paul. Okay. But here's what he's saying. Keep your guard up. The minute you think this would never happen to me, you are Incredibly vulnerable. It's the lesson we learned at Pearl Harbor. As a nation, we thought no one, no one would ever dare attack mainline USA main USA, mainline USA. And because we didn't have our guard up, it cost us dearly. So yeah, no, identify your weaknesses, but that doesn't mean that these things over here you can't keep your guard up. And be careful and be wise. Okay. Number six. Don't just play, uh, defense. You gotta go on the offense. Right? Yeah. uh, You guys know I'm a coach. When I, when I, when I work with my team, we practice defense. But that's not all we practice. You know why? Because if all you work on is defense, you're never gonna win. Right? I don't wanna just tie. In the spiritual battle we're in, I don't just wanna tie. I wanna win. And so, so often we get, we get stuck in don't, don't have anger, don't have pride, don't be greedy, don't be envious, don't be lazy or gluttonous, don't have lust. Don't, 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 don't. Defense, 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 defense. There's nothing wrong with playing defense, but sometimes you got to go on the offense. You got to develop something positive that will accomplish the same thing. Let me show you what I mean. Let's put it up there. Instead of just being, not being angry, develop patience. Don't be so angry so quickly at people on the highway or your kids or the grocery store because someone's in the wrong line. Learn patience. Develop patience. Either stop being angry or develop patience, you still win. Instead of just not focusing on eliminating pride, work on humility. Instead of working on just eliminating greed, work on contentment. Instead of having envy and eliminating that, develop joy for others. That's the opposite of uh, uh, of envy. Instead of being jealous of you, I'm happy for you. I'm happy you have the car. I'm happy you had the nice vacation. I'm I'm happy you got the promotion. I don't have to be jealous of you. I'm happy for you. That's the opposite of envy, right? Laziness. Get a job. Okay. Some parents want me to say that again. Get a job. Okay. Or volunteer. Get off your internet. Get off your phone. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but some of us are spending so much time on that. There's other things around the house or other school projects or other work. There's these things called people you can talk to. Okay, so don't be lazy, you know, focus on the other two. Last two, all is the same thing. Gluttony and lust develop self-control, you know, gluttony, eating too much, drinking too much. Learn self-control, lust, work on self-control. By the way, if I was talking to a, a only married audience couples, I would also at this point say that instead of just avoiding lust, one of the things I would encourage marriage couples to do is work on your sex life. I, I don't know why we're so shy, you know, to talk about this. If you want a healthy marriage, you need to learn how to deal with conflict. You need to learn communication. You need to have some parenting skills. You need to have some financial skills and you know, all these things. That you also have to have a healthy sexual relationship. And, you know, this is your excuse. This is your excuse sometime in the next 24 to 48 hours to say to your spouse, how are we doing in that area? How are we doing and how can we improve? Right. By the way, I would never have that conversation in bed. Go to Applebee's and have the conversation Not with other people at Applebee's, just the two of you, right? Because in bed, it gets you going right away. No, just we're, we're just talking. What, what's going on? How can we do better? Don't avoid it. Be mature and just talk about it. Okay. I, I, I found a quote a while back. I thought it was rather, rather, rather truthful. It says this before marriage, the devil tries to make sex the most important part of your relationship. Right? You can't keep your hands off each other. After marriage, the devil tries to make sex the least important part of your relationship. Either way, he wins. So let's be mature about it. Okay? Number seven. Number seven is visualize the consequences. Visualize what would happen. If I lose my temper, what's going to happen? If I'm a prideful, cocky person, what's going to happen? If I'm gluttonous, eat too much and drink too much alcohol, what's going to happen? Right? If I succumb to lust, what's going to happen? By the way, you want to know what happened in this story? The son of Bathsheba and David, the consequences that he died. Let me just say it one more time. Every time you sin, something dies. You may not know what, but something dies. Sometimes the best motivation to not do something is to know what's going to happen if you do do it. It's a powerful motivation, okay? Number eight and number nine both go together. Find a Nathan, be a Nathan. You go, what the heck is a Nathan? Well, chapter 12, I'm not going to read it, but chapter 12 is the story, and it's entitled in my Bible, Nathan Rebukes David. Everyone seemed to know in the palace what was going on. Joab knew what was going on. They knew what, what what David had done with Bathsheba and what he had done with Uriah and how he'd covered it up. And uh, but there's only one guy, one guy that had a backbone to speak the truth to David. And his name was Nathan. Nathan could I ask you a question. Do you have someone in your life that has the guts to speak truth in your life? They're close to you. And I'm not saying your spouse. I'm talking gender specific, one or two people. And they rejoice with you when things are going great. And they give you advice about life and career. And, and then occasionally they say, hey, can I talk to you about something I've noticed? Something I've seen that's not good. Do you have that person? Because if you don't, you run the risk of going further and further down the path. That, that's what Christian community is about. By the way, you do not have a right to be Nathan to everyone. It's not your business. You have to have a relationship with them, okay? Second of all, even if you do have a relationship with them, if all you're doing is pointing out things and issues and problems, uh, I'm not going to want to be your amigo very much longer, right? So you have to balance it out. But every once in a while, you have someone that speaks truth in your life, even though it stings. Flip side, you need to be a Nathan. Oh, pastor, did you you hear about so-and-so and what they're doing? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm going to pray about it. Can you pray about it? Yeah, I prayed about it. And God told me to tell you, you should go talk to him. (laughs) Have the courage, have the backbone for the people you care about and the people you're close to. To say, hey, could I talk to you about something, you know, and you got to be very careful and wise in their timing and your tone. But when you speak to them, then it's on them. Are they going to hear you out or not? but it's incredibly important. The last one, let me wrap this up, is uh, memorize a verse, memorize scripture that deals with whatever weakness or temptation or sin you struggle with. On your study guide, whether you do the study guide or not, um, on the back page, I've given you the seven deadly sins. And for each one of the deadly sins, I've given you three verses. In my opinion, three of the top verses in the Bible on the topic. And what I would suggest is if you're serious about what we've talked about today, find your weakness, whichever one or two of these are, and then whichever one or two of the verses you want to memorize, memorize them. Because here's what Scripture tells us about temptation. When I'm in the middle of temptation, if I've memorized Scripture, God will tend to bring it back to mind, and that'll be an encouragement to get off temptation highway. Does that make sense? So I I don't frankly, I don't care if you keep these suckers, but this one time you might want to keep this for a couple days. Look up these verses and decide which one am I going to memorize? I'm going to have Gabe come up and we're going to um, wrap up. But but real quickly, let me read these 10, these 10 application steps. Which one are you going to pick? Identify my weaknesses, temptations. Number one, number two and three, pray for strength and wisdom. Number four, identify exit ramps. Number five, don't be stupid, keep my guard up. Number six, don't just play defense, play offense. Number seven, visualize consequences. Number eight, be a uh, find a Nathan. Number nine, be a Nathan. Number 10, memorize scripture. Which one are you going to do? To wrap us up, I want to read to you a portion from Proverbs 5. This passage where God is speaking, or uh, dad is speaking to his son. And I want to read to you how Proverbs... Five ends. Mark well that God doesn't miss a move you make. In other words, God's watching. Oh I might not be watching your pastor, your spouse or your parent might not be watching. Your teacher, your coach, your boss, your friends, they may not be watching, but don't ever forget. your God is watching. Mark well that God doesn't miss a move you make. He's aware of every step that you take. Don't forget, the shadow of your sin will eventually overtake you. You'll find yourself stumbling all over yourself in the dark. And listen how he ends: death. So we've been saying this whole time: something always dies when we sin. Death is the reward of an undisciplined life. Let's pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want you to take 20 seconds, you and God. What one thing are you going to do differently when you face temptation this next week? What one thing are you going to do differently that allows you to stand strong, to resist temptation, and to live victoriously? Tell God what you're going to do. Why don't you guys stand with me as we close in prayer? Before I pray, ladies, there's still a chance to sign up for Simulcast. Five seconds after I close in prayer, the prayer room is open if you want prayer. And then finally, if you are not can't come tonight, go over to the table of Motions of Grace, give them a hug, buy a CD, just thank them for being with us. Let's pray and we'll, we'll get going. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, how practical it is. Every single week you teach us something new. Father, this next week when we face temptation, bring these words back to our mind. Strengthen us. Give us self-control. Remind us to live righteously, not unrighteously. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said.
0: It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Bronte, California, exists to help everyone take their next step closer to Jesus. Thanks again for listening.